So welcome to Build. Today is going to be really good because I have an awesome guest who is a CEO, founder, and operator with an absolutely incredible track record. Rahul Vora is the CEO and founder of Superhuman, the fastest email experience ever made. He's also the CEO and co-founder of Reportive, which was acquired by LinkedIn. He's an investor. The list goes on and on. But I actually discovered him through a Medium post that was widely shared around Drift about product market fit and how to measure it. So welcome to Build, Rahul. Thank you for having me. So I want to get into that product market fit score and measurement. But first, I'd love to know, how did you pick the inbox problem and sort of what led you to focus on email in the first place? Well, I actually had a previous company in the email space. You mentioned Reportive. I started that company in about 2010. And we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to many millions of users. For those who don't know it, basically, when people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets, and links to their social profiles. Ultimately, we helped you be brilliant with people. And so we grew rapidly. Two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn, and, and there I ran our email integrations. And during those years, I developed a pretty intimate perspective of the email space and how it was going. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, still not working offline. And on top of that, people were installing plugins like our own, Reportive, but also things like Boomerang and Mixmax. And each plugin took those problems the clutter, the memory, the CPU, the performance, the offline, and made them dramatically worse. So for Superhuman, we asked ourselves the question, what would Gmail look like if instead of being 14 years old, it were built from scratch today? And we imagined an email experience that's blazingly fast, that's visually gorgeous, didn't need a bunch of browser extensions, and just work offline. And so I'm happy to say that today, as, as you also said, Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. And many of our users end up getting to their inbox about twice as fast as they did by comparison to in Gmail. And they see uh, inbox zero for the first time in years. Right. That's incredible. Yeah, I've seen a couple of people around here who have achieved the nirvana of inbox zero. So that sounds amazing and, and really sort of simple when you summarize it that way. But how did you get from sort of A to B, especially in terms of your product team and how you approach that problem? Well, how would you define A and B in that question? The, the messy current state of Gmail and then this sort of perfect ideal state of the fastest email experience ever made. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think like many entrepreneurs, it starts off with a bit of a personal pet peeve, an itch that you want to scratch. As a founder of Reportive and as a product manager at LinkedIn, I obviously did a ton of email in both Gmail as a founder and then in Outlook at a large company. And so I was really, really familiar just personally as a user. Then on top of that, as a founder of an email company before, I was talking to all of these customers about that previous product. And during those conversations, although I could see that Reporter was helping them increase their quality of life and do their job better, they had fundamental dissatisfaction with the underlying product, in that case, Gmail, as did I. And when I dug in, some common themes came about. In fact, when we started Superhuman, uh, we had a pretty terrible landing page, uh, nothing like the website we have now. And it was basically just a box where you could leave your email address if you were interested to hear more. And when you left your email address, you would get an automatic email from me. Uh, and I would ask a question, what do you use for email today? And what are your pet peeves? And that started 
a conversation and I would jump in. And then when the volume was too high, other people on our team would also jump in. And we go back and forth talking with these people who were signing up on our webpage. And through that way, I think we did north of 700 interviews with founders and CEOs and other early adopter types who we wanted to use our products just in the first year alone. And this is before you had a product and anything sort of that they could actually use. Exactly. It was definitely before there was anything they could use. We were building the product at the same time. But during the course of these interviews, we learned what kinds of things were annoying people. And we confirmed the hypotheses that I had. So the two main things that we learned were people were frustrated with Gmail because it was slow and it slowed them down. And people were frustrated with third-party email clients because they were also slow, but in addition, they were unreliable, they were buggy, they didn't sync properly, and so on. Therein, it was pretty easy to arrive at the idea that, well, perhaps if we built a thing that was incredibly fast, was really pretty, and just worked, that people would really love it. Awesome. So then, like, how did you know that you had hit that? So I think I'm trying to get into the product market fit score, obviously. But you know, I think it's one thing to say, I want to build the tool that does exactly this thing. But then how did you measure your progress along the way? Progress is fairly difficult to measure before you're ready to have external users. And especially for a product like ours, where email is mission critical, it's how people do business. For our target market, emailers work and workers email. You have to be pretty darn sure you have a high quality product before you invite users to use your product. And so before that time, you have to measure progress internally. And for me, it was relatively simple. I'm fortunate that I am a perfect example of the kind of person that we wanted to use the product. And so every day I just did a simple gut check. Am I actually ready to switch from Gmail to Superhuman? And for the longest time I wasn't. And the reason for that was uh, any number of things. We were just working down that list. Sometimes it was reliability, sometimes it was speed. Uh, once we knocked those things out, it became features. And then we got to the point where at least I, perhaps the most forgiving and simultaneously the most demanding of users, but, but certainly forgiving because I'm working on it, could use the product. So up until that point, it was a, a daily gut check. After that point, we started adding a trickle of users. And we started really slowly, like we're talking maybe one user every month or two. And then it was one user a month, and then it was a few users a month, and then we worked up to a few users a week. And with each new user, we were learning so much uh, bugs that we didn't know about, or features that we didn't think we had to build, or edge cases that we hadn't considered. And so we just started to make sure that for each new user, we could actually accommodate them and be their daily driver email clients. And once we got past that phase, then it starts to get into what you just mentioned, which is the, the product market fit score phase, where we have a stable email experience. It is really fast. Uh, it does a lot of things really great. Now, how do we start to iterate to a measurable definition of product market fit. Right. So then if I remember correctly in the article, um, which we'll link to in the show notes, but in the article, you talk about how the goal of a product team is to get product market fit, but it's really hard to know when you actually have it. So did you start off with a hypothesis on this question itself or how did you guys come to this as a team? We were pretty clear 
from the foundation of the company that getting to product market fit was going to be one of our biggest challenges and one of our most important endeavors as a founding team. Uh, it wasn't the first thing that we did. The first thing that we did, as I said, was just make a thing I could use. Then it was make a thing a few friends could use, a few investors could use. But once we'd ramped past that point, yeah, we all knew the plan was to get to product market fit. Now, it wasn't exactly clear how we were going to measure it. And I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of talking to experts and a lot of figuring stuff out to come up with the 40% metric that's mentioned in the article. And then there was a lot of thinking on top of that as well to come up with the whole product market fit engine. At this point, did you have a team of product managers who were sort of running the survey or was just one survey all for Superhuman all at once? It was just one survey. And even to date, we don't actually have a full-time product manager that's not myself. So we, we are, of course, hiring for that role as we are hiring for, for many other roles. But the whole team just came together in a, in a big effort. One of our team members is a bit more bizops and analytics minded. I asked them to pull together the survey and to instrument it and to connect it up to type form and to make sure it goes out to users once they hit a certain activation threshold. And it was one survey for the entire product. Awesome. So then we also talked a little bit about um, in our previous chat about NPS versus the score. Because I think something that I'm sure a lot of product people and other people in, in startups and I guess really anywhere are thinking about, you know, how do I know when I've I'm at the right point. How do I measure myself, especially if the thing that I'm working on isn't necessarily super measurable? Like I want to build the most usable, the most useful, the most amazing product in the market. You know, how do I measure that? How do you think about those two types of metrics between NPS and this product market fit score? I think that's a really great question. And it's one I get asked a lot, actually. Now, it turns out that they're both very different scores. They measure different things and different levers move them. The one thing that they share is that they're both incredibly useful, and I would say that they're both even necessary. So the PMF score measures a level of dependency on a product, either because there's such a strong emotional connection or because nothing else exists quite like it. The MPS score, on the other hand, measures how strong your word of mouth effect is. In other words, how strong or how viral, rather, your product can be in the real world. Now, in practice, one is not better than the other. You need both to build a meaningful company. One is going to determine the fundamental success of the product, and the other is going to determine your distribution success. But if you have one and not the other, it's unlikely you'll build a successful company. Right. So then as a PM, you know, what would your advice be to a PM who's thinking about, you know, okay, it's 2019, I want to set new goals, I want to make sure I'm measuring everything. Would you suggest product market fit first and NPS second, or how would you think about that? I would definitely measure both simultaneously. Okay. So in the survey that we send out, we have both the PMF questions as well as the NPS questions. Oh, so you're asking them both at the same time. Correct. They're in the same survey. We, we ask the PMF questions first, and then we ask, you know, how likely are you to recommend the product later on in the same survey? Uh, I'm always a fan of collecting the data. I think we should always be collecting data. But we should be careful and thoughtful about what we choose to focus on. And my inclination would always be solve for product market fit first and then solve for MPS. Now, if the organization has the capacity to solve for both things, then by all means, go for it. 
because it's different levers that drive NPS. It's how great your customer support is, how great your brand is, how smart you make your users look, or how cool you make them feel. And there's a ton of non-product stuff that you can do to drive NPS. Uh, it's a question of resources. And for most startups, I'd say don't worry too much about it. Just get the PMS score really high. Right, because if you can get your product to be the absolute best solution for whatever problem you're trying to solve, in theory, the NPS would take care of itself in some respects. I think you'll have a good foundation, but I don't think NPS just takes care of itself from a great product. Um, it's, it's definitely the start. But there are also other things, like I mentioned. There's things like design. There's things like scarcity can drive NPS as well, interestingly. There's lots of tactics and strategies that one can deploy to pursue NPS. I would say if the organization is small and resources are constrained, do PMF only. If you've got PMF, then also solve for NPS. And if you have lots of resources, then, then why not swing for the fences and try and move both needles? Right. So I have another question about the process that you went through sort of along the way as you were building Superhuman. So I think you might have touched on this a little bit earlier. What kinds of products do you think this super slow rollout, have to get it right, really sort of hyper-focused on all the details? At least that's what it looks like from the outside. What kinds of products do you think that works best for? And you know, what types of PMs should be listening to this and thinking, okay, that's the approach I should take? I think it works really well for products where the influencers and tastemakers in the industry really feel the pain. So if you think about email, the people who feel the pain most intensely include CEOs, founders, executives, managers, investors, and so on. And those people are also very influential and effective at spreading the word about great new products. And in many cases have the ultimate buying power or authority within their organizations. So I would say if you have a product like that, where in its industry, it's exceptionally great for the influencers and tastemakers, then the kind of go-to-market strategy that we've used is likely to work exceptionally well. Cool. So if you're building for someone whose standards are really, really high and maybe where there are other options available sort of in the market that are solving for that problem, all that not well, that's when you need to be focused on this type of go-to-market strategy. When the standards are high, yes, yeah. and also where the customers are really, really influential. Do you think there's also an aspect of it where the customers are very familiar with the problem that you're solving? Familiarity is, I think that's, yes, that's definitely part of it. But it also has to be a really painful problem. Right. Right. I mean, obviously, email is a painful problem for the constituents I just listed out, the the executives and the managers and so on. Never have you ever heard an executive or manager say, I really love doing my email. Yeah. I, I literally don't remember the last time. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that, actually, ever. Well, are you getting it now with their, your users of Superhuman? Yeah, we have had people turn around and say, you know what, I'm, it's really weird to say this, but I actually kind of enjoy doing my email yeah. now. It's kind of crazy, so good job, guys. But yeah. beforehand, it was, it's just not a thing that people would say. And so, you know, maybe we stumbled across a, a perfect storm, you know, kind of, the fact that we found a market where the incumbents have scared off most new entrants, where the products that exist already are really old, where the most influential people also feel the most pain, uh, and maybe it's just a perfect storm, but I think it is actually replicable in other industries. 
So that's a good point that you made, that the incumbents had scared off some of the other possible entrants. How did you know that you were going to be the one to solve the problem? How were you able to sort of look at Gmail, you know, that huge, huge, huge elephant in the room and say, we can do better? I had a very interesting lunch once at LinkedIn. I was coming towards the end of my time there. And a good VC friend of mine took me out for lunch. And he sat me down and he said, hey, Rahul, you've sold a company now. That changes things for you a little bit, especially when it comes to fundraising. You are now able to take on really capital intensive businesses. And I laughed and I said, of course you would say that because you, you, know, <laughs> you want to invest a ton of money in stuff and that's how you own large, large parts of right. businesses, right? But he was like, no, seriously, you, you can raise money on a dream and no one will question your ability to put together a team that executes. And for first-time entrepreneurs, that's a real consideration that investors have all the time. Is this team actually able to do the world-dominating plan that they've laid out? So with that in mind, when I was thinking of what I was going to do next, I deliberately focused my attention on ideas that would actually require a reasonable amount of capital, especially ideas that would scare away first-time entrepreneurs because they seemed impossible or not doable. And one of those ideas was this observation that no one had really tried to build a better front-end experience for email than Gmail. No one had tried to do it in a very well-capitalized manner with a veteran team. And at that time, no one was doing it on the desktop, especially with the angle that we were taking, which is it's all about speed. It's all about getting you through your email twice as fast. And I made that choice because I knew there'd be very little competition. And even today, no one has built, or to my knowledge, is building a product quite like Superhuman. Right. That's incredible. But for people who are listening who are maybe in that bucket of want to be first-time founders or they are first-time founders, or maybe people who are sort of considering being an entrepreneur, what advice would you give to them sort of having been through that process yourself a couple of times now? So being a founder... The metaphor that I like to use is imagine this great, gigantic flywheel made of really, really dense material, some of the densest material on earth. It's a really, really heavy object. And your job as a founder is to get that flywheel moving. And the good news is once it's moving, because it's so dense and heavy, it'll actually keep moving all by itself. Now, as a second time founder, I can come back and I can do things in in a weird order. I can raise money and then hire a team and then build a product, right? That, that option isn't available to everybody. The first time around, I couldn't do that at all. And, you, you know, you just can't do that. So for Reportive, it was much more of the classical way of doing it, which is I had taught myself to be a, a semi-incompetent web developer, let's put it that way, built a prototype I identified a problem, sort of single-handedly got this thing out the door somehow. It barely did anything. But the core idea of information in, in your Gmail uh, was so resonant that that quickly got to tens of thousands of users. Right. Um, and I then used that traction to recruit some wonderful co-founders. And we then used that team to get into Y Combinator. And we then used that branding to raise some seed funding. And, and then we were off to the races. And so if you pull that apart, if you imagine this flywheel, the very first thing I did there was build a prototype. And then it was launch it. 
And then it was show that people really loved it. And then it was use that to build a team. And then it was use that to get into an accelerator. And then it was use that to raise some seed funding. And so that is a much more typical journey for a first-time entrepreneur. I love that you started with prototype and then you have launch and then that you need to get your users loving it and then you can build a team. And I think you can really sort of understand that flywheel. And I would imagine that your second time around, you can look at the flywheel and you know where the right points are to build that momentum much faster than you probably did the first time around. I wouldn't necessarily say it's faster. In many cases, Superhuman has been a much slower company than Reportive. I started, scaled and sold Reportive in 20 months from writing the first line of code. Wow. Okay. Uh, and I'm four yeah, years into Superhuman. Now, they both yeah. have very different orders of magnitude for ambition. Reportive was a tiny little feature inside of Gmail, or Superhuman is the entire email experience of which Reportive is just a tiny little feature. Right. True. Okay. Fair enough. So this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking us through this journey and, and what you've learned about product market fit and NPS along the way. Do you have any other advice that you would give for people who are considering sort of going out on their own and trying their own thing? Yes, especially having had seven failed companies prior to Reportive. Okay, so you had seven you had seven companies before you hit on your big exactly. first thing. Yeah. I love that because I think I, the narrative of, you know, hey, I had this idea, I tried it out, and I had this amazing success sort of overnight is almost never proves to be true. Yeah, that every time anyone ever says that, if you dig into what happened, it almost certainly didn't happen that way. Um, and they had many failures beforehand that they just sort of, you know, for uh, expedience probably did not say. Right. So my <laughs> advice would be, don't try and do a startup in your spare time. Maybe there are people for whom that works. I tried. It definitely did not work for me. I had to go all in. I had to put everything on the line. And I had to say, you know, I, I, I need to make this work. I need to focus my, my 10 productive hours a day or whatever it is on building a product that people really want and will love. And when I tried to do that alongside having a job, my attention was too divided. And in order to make ends meet, I, I definitely did some consulting here and there, but I would do it in a very bursty way. So for example, I would consult for 30 days, which would pay my way for the next six months. And then I would do another month of consulting, which would pay my way for another six months. Um, and that's how the early days of Reportive took off. And that's how I survived in the years prior. And then the second piece of advice I would have is persevere. Do not give up. It may feel like with each failure, you're not really making progress. But if you're smart, then you actually are. And you're learning things and you're gaining lessons that you can apply to the next iteration. And you never know which iteration is going to break out. But it will happen if you keep on trying. That I know for sure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And so for everyone listening, you just got absolutely gold advice on how to start a startup if you want to. So do it full time. Don't give up. And don't be fooled by the people who say it just happened to them overnight. So everyone, please leave a six-star review for Rahul. Give him a shout out in the comments and let me know if you have any feedback. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you.